Thank you so much for being here. I know this is the silly season and a lot of you probably had prior engagements. So thank you so much for being here this evening. My name is Tom Switzer. I'm the Executive Director here at the Centre for Independent Studies. And for those of you who aren't all that familiar with CIS, we're a public policy research organisation uh, and we've been around for more than four decades. And we're primarily committed to, among other things, primarily promoting the principles of classical liberalism. So if you like, a combination of um, John Stuart Mill and Edmund Burke. Uh, we're unashamed believers in free speech, free choice, free markets, uh, at a time when there are so many subjects uh, that can't be discussed openly without inspiring massive hysteria. Uh, we at CIS strongly believe in uh, the unashamed advocacy of classical liberalism. And we have a strong economics department. We believe in productivity enhancing economic reform, education reform. We're strong advocates of uh, NAPLAN. Uh, this week we've been everywhere. Uh, our scholars, Fiona Muller, uh, Blaise Joseph, Glenn uh, Fay, uh, they've been everywhere in response to the program for international student assessments. It's been a big front page story over the last few days. And our line of argument is that more tax dollars will not self-evidently improve literacy and numeracy outcomes in schools. And we're very much going against the conventional wisdom. We're strong defenders of religious freedom. Uh, we support policies designed to help uh, disadvantaged communities in our remote communities, particularly the Indigenous communities. And uh, we are increasingly engaged in the China policy debate. Uh, in August, we hosted the US Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. Uh, shortly afterwards, we had a great debate in Canberra in front of more than 500 people. as uh, a debate between Professor John Mearsheimer from the University of Chicago and the ANU Professor uh, Hugh White. And the question was Australia's choice in the increasingly intense strategic and economic competition. Who won? Uh, I think 50-50. <laughs> and the great thing about it was, this is the wonderful thing about going to Canberra, it was the first time we ever went to Canberra. We had more than 500 people. About half of them were high school and university students, and they mobbed both uh, professors afterwards. It was a great, great debate. So CIS is in front and centre of the battle of ideas. We take political history very seriously for when politicians and policymakers act in the present, they all too often look to the past in helping create the future. And that's why, in some respects, we're gathered here today for this special occasion. Uh, Richard Alston, of course, was a cabinet minister in the Liberal National Government of Prime Minister John Howard. Um, he was also the High Commissioner to Britain. His book is called More to Life Than Politics. Uh, copies are available at reception. Uh, we'll hear from Richard Alston very soon, but before that, I'd like to call on his old boss, uh, John Howard, to make some remarks. John Howard, of course, was Prime Minister for the best part of 12 years, from early 1996 to late 2007. He was a Member of Parliament for more than 30 years. And uh, he is, I think it goes without saying, a real ornament to both the Liberal and the Conservative communities in the country and the nation at large. Please welcome John Howard. Well, thank you very much, Tom. Um, can I start by saying that it's always a delight to be the Centre for Independent Studies. Uh, it is um, an exemplar of uh, that thought stream which is so important to Australia and uh, her future. And that thought stream is based on individual liberty, economic progress best achieved 
by open markets, a strong belief in the inherent value of the Australian community and the Australian achievement, and a willingness, as always, to recognise politics as being, above everything else, a contest of ideas. I've often said that uh, my political mentor, the late Sir John Carrick, who many Liberals in this audience will remember uh, as originally the director, or he was then called the General Secretary before these people had more pretentious titles, uh, uh, of the New South Wales Division of the Liberal Party, and he instilled in me from a very early period of time that politics was not a public relations tournament, important though public relations obviously is, but it was fundamentally a contest of ideas. And what is important about CIS, what is important about the Institute of Public Affairs, what is important about the Ramsey Centre for Western Civilisation, of which I am privileged to be the chairman of that body, is the contest of ideas. And I congratulate Tom and his colleagues at the CIS for the work that they have done uh, carrying on from Greg Lindsay. I remember the beginnings of the CIS. One of the great champions of the CIS was a man we referred to as the one-armed bandit. And that was the late... He's not late, no, he's, he's still very much alive. Um, um, he, he, he's a late Member of Parliament like me, you see. <laughs> Uh, um, John, uh, John Hyde was elected to the federal parliament as the Liberal member for Moore in 1974, the same year that I entered, and John, of course, became a real apostle for uh, the sort of causes. But I'm here tonight to commend to you a beautifully written memoir from Richard Alston. Richard Alston was one of my most trusted and valued colleagues as a senior minister in the government that I was uh, fortunate enough to be able to form by the verdict of the Australian people on the 2nd of March 1996 and his uh, stewardship uh, of communications and related policy was quite a remarkable period of time in our government. He also, of course, at various stages provided great leadership for the coalition in the Senate. And um, he was a person widely admired and trusted by both sides of politics, even uh, by those who detested his political views. Of course, one of the interesting things that I, I think I have his permission to reveal tonight is that there's sometimes talk uh, in the Liberal Party that there were wets and dries and uh, I don't quite know why. I thought it was all a happy broad church where everybody sat tightly together uh, in, 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 in ample pews and, uh, and, and there was no real... But um, Richard replaced a, a wonderful individual, the late, and I've got it right this time, Alan Misson. Um, Alan certainly belonged to that section of the Liberal Party in Victoria that was uh, uh, called Small Lib liberal. And, and Richard came in and he was sort of seen as a successor uh, in that genre in the Liberal Party in Victoria. 
And after a while, Peter Costello and I started to sort of, you know, have a bit of fun about this. And we would say to, hey, Alston, you came in as a sort of a small liberal wet, but you're actually drying out, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, no, I've settled on rising damp. So, <laughs> uh, but he was a wonderful colleague. Uh, you could always get an intellectual argument from Richard. And one of the features of this book that I like is that it's a nice mixture of history and personal reflection. He reminds us very forcefully that the idea of a rapid turnover of Australian Prime Ministers is not something of recent years. There were five Australian Prime Ministers in the first 10 years after Federation. And there's an argument that the long periods, the Menzies government, the Hawke government, the Howard government, and, and, and indeed earlier the, uh, the Lyons and, and Hughes governments were the exception uh, rather than the rule. One of the other fascinating features of this book is, of course, his description of his encounters uh, with the, the media moguls, with Kerry Packer uh, and Rupert Murdoch. And anybody who's had anything to do with communications in this country, uh, can't write about it without referring to those quite remarkable Australians. And I agree very much with the comments that he made about both men, who I saw a lot of and, uh, and in Rupert's case, continue to see from time to time. Uh, I don't think anybody on the international business scene as an Australian has made a greater impact than Rupert Murdoch. And people who seek to denigrate him and uh, to deny that proposition of being churlish. And, of course, I said in my own memoir that I don't think I met a more astute businessman than Kerry Packer. Uh, his um, instinctive understanding uh, of business things and his capacity to describe them in language the Australian community identified with. And he was a very interesting phenomenon. He was incredibly wealthy but I think at various stages he spoke uh, for the mainstream of the Australian community in a way that uh, few could. I've never forgotten his appearance before that Senate committee uh, when, he, when he basically said, you're not doing such a terrific job that people are queuing up to donate extra tax. <laughs> and I thought that was very well put. I hasten to add, of course, there was a Labor government in power at the time. <laughs> uh, he wasn't talking about my government. And... <laughs> But Richard has done uh, an absolutely wonderful job and I'm so happy that he has added to the growing disposition of those on the centre-right side of politics to write about their experiences. This idea that it's only the Labor people who write about their experiences, uh, that is fading as a proposition. And I'm really very, very grateful. Peter Reith has written um, uh, uh, his recollections and, and Richard has now added, and it was Peter Costello with his late father-in-law, Peter Coleman, who many in, in this organisation remember with enormous respect and affection, uh, he wrote as well. And I think it is enormously important. And I'm sorry that Tony Abbott said, he's reported it, having said he's not going to write his memoirs. I found that hard to believe, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, anyway, I wish him well and I hope he, because uh, he's a great wordsmith, Tony, 
he really is. He's a, he's a wonderful wordsmith, but that's really got not a lot to do with the book I'm launching <laughs> tonight. But I just want to say to all of you that this is, this is a very well-written book, and it's been written by Richard. You can tell. You can always tell when a book's ghosted. Uh, and I spent enough time around the cabinet table with Richard uh, to uh, know how he talks, how he thinks, and therefore how he writes. And, and, and this is a wonderful example of that. And I thank him very warmly He's been, for having done this. He's made some, the odd kind comment about me, which, for which I thank him. But most importantly, uh, what he's done is to add to our recollection and our store of understanding uh, of somebody who came through, as I did, the party organisation, he in Victoria, me in New South Wales, and contributed at an organisational level and had also built a very successful legal practice. And I'll finish on this note that he's an example of the sort of people of which we need more of. We want people in Parliament, whether they're Liberal or Labor or National Party, who've had some life's experience in something other than just politics. I'm interested, there's a lot of here, because this is a growing concern I have. Um, you want people who've done something else and done it for a period of years. I get lots of young men and women come and, come and see me and say, oh, I want to get into politics. You got any advice? I said, yes, well, I got two pieces of advice. Firstly, you've got to join the Liberal Party. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and the second piece of advice is do something with your life for the next 10 years that is not just working in a politician's office or working for a trade union or something like that. And uh, I think it's important. And Richard's an exemplar. He built a practice. He had an independent professional existence. And then he, he gave the rest of his working life to politics. And we thank him for it. Thank you. John Howard, thank you. And... Uh you talking about uh, Richard's ideological odyssey about rising damp reminds me, <laughs> rising damp reminds me of when I was at the Australian editorial page for many years, the best part of a decade, we used to say that the major paper in Melbourne, the Melbourne Age, its opinion pages were so dripping wet, you can't even turn them. <laughs> it's got worse since, <laughs> since those days. Thank you. Thank you, John. Um, Richard Alston, I'll just simply say what the, back, the, the book jacket says here at the end. Barrister, politician, diplomat, company director, senior cabinet minister for more than seven years. He was a leading figure in the national debates about privatisation, innovation, information technology, the arts and the ABC. Please welcome Richard Alston. Thank you very much indeed, Tom, and uh, it's a great honour to be here tonight because the Centre for Independent Studies, I think, is, has been the leader in uh, the debates around Australia for many, many years, and uh, we're all very supportive. But uh, particularly, thank you for your hospitality and for all that you've done to help this book get to this stage. Um, I'd certainly like to thank John Howard for his kind words. Um, I think back to uh, when I first did enter the parliament and uh, you are at a bit of a loss to start with and you start to sort of work people out. And I found John right from the outset to be someone that you could talk sensibly to. Uh, clearly he would have had his ambitions like most people do in politics, but 
he was a very thoughtful person and he had ideas and things that he wanted to do and I, I admired that and uh, I've continued to admire him over the years and he's been very helpful to me uh, and I think certainly his leadership of Australia has been outstanding and the Liberal Party as well. So there's a big chapter in my book on leadership and uh, he gets a bit of a mention to say the least. So I think um, what I should say about the book really is that the question mark is the key because what that does is it tells you that there's a significance to politics but there's also another life that many of us lead and the trick is to get the balance right. And I think uh, in my case I would say that um, family and friends clearly are critically important to the way you live your life and how comfortable you feel about yourself. But there are other things that uh, one can do and I would say my extracurricular activities have involved things like um, opera and theatre, uh, certainly collecting books, uh, silk rugs, which took me to Iran a few times, chasing them, uh, and um, Indigenous art in particular. And uh, those things, I think, enriched my political life as well as subsequently. And I've always felt that it was important that people understood the hidden life rather than the political life because most politicians are judged by their time in uh, the public spotlight, their 15 minutes of fame. But the reality is that um, many of us, in my case, um, there for 18 years, which is quite a long time. It's only about half the time Mr Howard was there, of course, but uh, that that's less than one quarter of my lifespan to date. So there's a lot more going on in your life than the fact that you were in Canberra for a number of years. And uh, I think when I look back on it, um, my time in politics does need to be put into that wider context. Uh, to be a politician, you need to be a, a special sort of an animal, really. You need to have uh, a determination, you need to have perseverance, you need to have the ambition. Uh, in many ways, you, you have to be ready for the fight. Uh, it's, it's a very unusual occupation. If you're in business and you launch a product, you don't expect your competition to immediately come out and tip buckets all over it. In politics, there's never any such thing as clean air. Everything's contestable. And... Uh, it was certainly my experience that you had to be able to withstand all of that, whether it was from your opponents, sometimes even from your own side, um, <laughs> uh, and certainly from the media, who uh, were always keen to controversialise whatever happened to be going on. Uh, I know Woody Allen's often said that 80% of success in life is just turning up, but... In reality, of course, even though you went to many branch meetings and all sorts of other things, you had to have those spe that special skill set that I mentioned earlier. And I think ultimately you have to have respect for politics as a noble profession. And as John says, you don't just want careerists. You want people who understand the importance of what politics is all about. And the guy that said it well for me was Charles Krauthammer, who was a um, Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist, and he called it the sovereignty of politics. And, and what he meant by that was that there, there are a lot of other good things that go on around you and that you should enjoy. But at the end of the day, it's the primacy of politics that determines the success of the country and the civilization. And, of course, the best example of that is Argentina, because Australia and Argentina at the start of the 20th century were equal number one in the world per capita GDP. 
look at it now, our per capita GDP is five times the size of Argentina. We're in the top 10, they're not in the top 50. And why is that? Because they never got the politics right, whether it was the Peronistas, whether it was military dictators, coups, whatever. Uh, they just didn't focus on what really mattered to the people. And I think that's been the great strength of the Liberal Party, that we do focus very much on mainstream Australia. And the last election was yet another example of how that works. When I... Um, there's a bit of luck in politics, to say the least, as there is in life. But one of the great pieces of good fortune was to be there for the Howard ascendancy. And I think looking back, many people would see it as almost a golden era. Uh, it was, but for me, I was particularly lucky because I became a shadow minister at the very time that communications was transforming itself from pretty much a policy backwater where the only issue was about media and all of a sudden, I get it, when I just completed an MBA on telecoms and Henry Ergas, who's written a little preface in the book, uh, Henry was a real mentor. I mean, he's a polymath. He's an amazing guy. Uh, Henry once took me, he lectured me at Monash University in this and he encouraged me to focus on telecoms because he said, you know, this is going to what make the difference to whether an economy is successful. If you understand the life-changing significance of new technology, such as fibre optics, which, of course, can, means that you can have 100,000 simultaneous voice conversations on a piece of fibre thinner than a human hair. Now, when you think about it, what it means is that instead of charging for every piece of data, it's all basically free. You don't have to pay for emails. You, you can store anything you like. It's an extraordinary invention. And, of course, that led on to the internet and all sorts of things. So, to me, that was a, it was a wonderful time to be involved. Uh, I should say that um, once, as soon as I got that uh, shadow portfolio back in 89, um, I was quite pleased, naturally enough. I went home the Friday... Went home, I thought, well, I might get a few phone calls tomorrow. Uh, I got a couple, got a couple, and the phone went dead. So I thought, oh. And it was obviously going to stay dead. So I went next door, rang up Telecom, as it then was, and explained the problem. And the person said, well, uh, are you a doctor? And I said, no. And they said, well, we don't come out at weekends. And I said, well, that's not really good enough. And then I thought of one of Goff's great Bon Mo's, which was, this is no time for false modesty. So I said, well, let me just explain that I've become the shadow minister for telecom and uh, it's, it's very important to me and to you. So, <laughs> so they, they, the guy thought for a moment, he said, just a minute. And then someone came back on the line and said, uh, well, sir, uh, I think we might be able to make an exception in your case. You should understand that if we did go out at weekends, all the, all the blokes the network department would store everything up till the weekend for double time. So that's why we don't do it. And I said, well, I completely understand. <laughs> anyway, that's what they did. Um, I should also tell you how I got the arts portfolio because that was really amazing. Uh, when Alexander Downer became the leader, he invited the leadership group to come over to Adelaide and we worked through the various portfolios, as you do. And having done that, and I'd got communications again and... Um, he said, well, perhaps we should just check them off against the Labor ministers. 
And we came to Michael Lee and it was communications and the arts. And he said, who's got the arts for us? We all looked at each other. He said, do you want it? <laughs> I said, you beauty. <laughs> and I, I discovered later on Alexander would actually have liked to have the arts for himself. But, yeah. uh, but anyway, he was gracious enough to uh, allow me to have it. And of course, I never let go for a moment because I always said, comet by day, arts by night. And... Uh, what it really meant for me was that, that there was a lot of joy in the arts. Telecoms was in some ways an intellectual strategic challenge, but the arts was something I really did relate to. And I think as a result, um, it, it was something that we put a lot of time and effort into. Uh, I should say that um, just as John Howard and, and Bob Menzies had periods in the wilderness, it took me quite a number of years to get into Parliament. And uh, Robert Ray used to call me the, the minister, the member for Melways, because he said I was running around <laughs> everywhere looking for a seat, you see. Uh, but having finally got there, I think it was much the better for it, because uh, you, you, you turn up battle-hardened, don't you? And uh, you, you're ready to hit the ground running. And I always recall uh, something that John Dyson, uh, Sir James Dyson, I should say, uh, said, which was success is pleasant, but it's failure that teaches us most and that spurs us on. And uh, I think I felt that too, and I many ways think that that's probably the making of a lot of people, that uh, they rise to the occasion, if you like. Uh, I did, um, of course, start at the bar, uh, but before that, after first-year law, my godfather, who was an ophthalmologist in Perth, but he also owned a shipping agency on the side, and he asked me if uh, a friend and I would like to become deckhands on a cargo ship around the Pacific for four months, which we did over that period. And uh, that was a very, as you can imagine, eye-opening experience. And uh, we travelled Singapore, Hong Kong, Japan, Canada, United States, Philippines. My most vivid memory is that on the first leg from Fremantle to Singapore, we had 10,000 sheep on deck and my job was to look after them. Now, <laughs> now, you know what sheep are like. You know, they won't get out of your way. They sort of, you know, just ignore you completely. So I thought I had this great idea. I could do a, a dog whistle. And I had a fantastic dog bark. But the trouble was it was so successful that they started jumping out of my way altogether. It was terrific. But unfortunately, two of them went over the side. <laughs> so the captain hauled me in and he said, listen, if you think we're going to turn around and get those sort of bugs, don't do it again. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that, I think, was part of my exposure to the wider world. And uh, then spending six months in London, another six months travelling around the rest of Europe and the Middle East, you know, sleeping on the banks of the Tigris and all of that sort of thing, going to Babylon. Uh, these are things you wouldn't even think of doing nowadays, of course. But um, again, I think that was very much something that uh, I, I took to mean that there was a wider world around. So when I finally came back to Australia, went to the bar, I always had this hankering to do something more than just focus on what I was doing in Australia. The bar was was very good experience. Um, I started off with the usual stuff, crime, you know, a few breaks and enters, a few manslaughters, a few jail breaks. I even did a couple of murders. Uh, I, the first one I did by myself, and I pleaded insanity on behalf of my client. <laughs> the, the second one, I was junior to Dick McGarvey. Remember Dick? Very great man, actually. Uh, 
a Labor stalwart, but uh, he was terrific to work with. Governor of Victoria. Governor of Victoria, Supreme Court judge. Anyway, we were working back late one night, Sunday night I think it was, and uh, eventually, long after midnight, Dick said we'd better go home and be ready for tomorrow. So when I saw him next morning, I said, how are you feeling? He said, pretty good. Uh, although he said it was quite an experience in the taxi on the way home because the taxi driver said, where have you been all this late hour? And Dick said, oh, I've been working back. What do you do for a living? He said, I'm a barrister. He said, you can't fool me, mate. He said, I was once on a jury. I know you bastards only work from 10.30 in the morning till 4.15 in the afternoon. (laughs) 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 Another thing I remember from my time at the bar, one of my best customers was a bird smuggler. And uh, he he had these sort of false backings on the bird sheds and generally got away with it, except that there'd be the odd spot visit from the inspectors, and they nab him, you see. So we're up in the county court in front of John Norris, Bugsy Norris, and uh, he said to me at one stage, well, that's all very interesting what you're putting to me, but is there any authority on this? And I said, knowing full well that there was one case on the subject, but it was all about my client. <laughs> so I said, well, nothing that would be helpful, Your Honour. <laughs> <laughs> But, of course, he saw right through that and we were convicted. But, you know, <laughs> so, so what, way it goes. Um, and while I was in, in, at the bar, of course, I did spend a bit of time doing other things like playing politics and becoming state president. And I was also chairman of the Australian Council for Overseas Aid, which was the peak body for all those aid agencies. And uh, that took me to various exotic places like Megs and I went to Mexico City for International Women's Year. Yeah, quite a daunting experience, you would imagine, but uh, we then went on to Cuba for a week and um, there were a lot of things that I found very interesting and probably helpful to my career because it, it taught me how to deal with people in different situations. And I went on aid missions to uh, the subcontinent, India and Bangladesh, to East Africa. Uh, one I remember was to Papua New Guinea and... Uh, the Governor-General at that time was Sir John Guise and he'd been a long-serving Cabinet Minister and, you know, a very revered figure. And uh, we were chatting about what it was like in Parliament and he said, um, you know, I used to travel quite a lot and he said, most of my colleagues would come back with all sorts of knickknacks, you know, bits of soap and things they'd picked up around the place. And so I cheekily said, well, did you ever bring back things like uh, that from hotel rooms? He said, certainly not. He said, my people were very poor. They insisted on bringing back towels and blankets. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I should just uh, refer back to the moguls because uh, they were, of course, part of what was fascinating about the portfolio. Um, Murdoch, I thought, was quite cerebral in many ways. He... Uh, he was thoughtful. He was a fabulous businessman. I can remember uh, when we first saw the Queen, she said, well, I should tell you what she did say. Am I allowed to say this? Um, we've, we've, what it was. Right. <laughs> 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 you can never pin anything on him. <laughs> anyway, actually, we were kept waiting for about 20 minutes. And when she came out, she said, not, not how do you do or, you know, pleased to meet you. She said, that man... I couldn't believe it. Just went on and on and on. What am I meant to do about 2,000 years of Serbian politics? 
I said, right, okay. So we settled down and she was fantastic to talk with. And then she said to me, so tell me, what do Australians think of Rupert Murdoch? And I knew exactly what she meant because, you know, the Murdoch press over there had given the royal family a very hard time. So I did say, well, actually, you mightn't want to hear this, but I think he's probably Australia's greatest international businessman. And, you know, she took it to her credit. She said, yeah, I understand that, I understand that, but I still don't like that bloody news of the world. Not bloody, <laughs> but you know what I mean. Uh, so I think dealing with Rupert was very, very different to dealing with Kerry. Uh, Kerry was intimidating in many ways. I can remember one time I, I had this idea of requiring the networks to provide news services in the bush. It was a bit optional at one stage. Uh, well, I got a phone call saying, Kerry wants to see you. So I go there and I had a think beforehand. I said, look, before we start, I just want to tell you, that idea, dead. We're not worrying about that, so can we move on? No, he said, you just sit there and let me tell you what a truly shocking idea it is. <laughs> so I got half an hour's worth and James looked at me a few times and winked, you know, and thought, well, actually, this is the way to handle him in many ways. But I remember one time... I was sitting in the office and the phone rang and uh, he said, Richard, Kerry Packer here. I said, oh, goof, good to hear from you. I'm thinking the worst, you know, what the hell have I done wrong? He said, uh, after a bit of a chat, he said, why do you think I'm ringing? I said, I don't know. He said, well, I'm with me mate Bob White and uh, Bob bet me that I couldn't get straight through to you. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> He, he was always very, very charitable about us. He'd say, absolutely shocking. You've done nothing. Here's, the, here's what you promised in government. You haven't delivered at all. He said, the only good thing about your lot, world's best practice, is the licence fees you're charging. He said, I'm going broke paying for them. <laughs> all right. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, again, you just had to, to put up with this. But uh, he, he was very... Very warm in many other ways. I mean, you could have a big argument with him and then I'd say, well, actually, I really have to go. And he'd suddenly get up, put his arm around you and walk you outside and say, how's the family? Are you going to the cricket and all this? And I thought, yes, it was an act. And uh, the last time I ever saw him, actually, I said to James, um, look, we're going off to London shortly. Can, we, can I see Kerry? And uh, he said, well, he's in hospital. He's not too good, but I'll, I'll try and then he came back and he said, Kerry's, Kerry's decided he's going to come in and see you in the office. And I said, oh, really? Well, I let him out. He said, no, he's not asking for permission. He's on his way. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, he got there. He said, oh, thank God. He said, at least I can have a smoke here. You have no idea what they do in that hospital. <laughs> so you, you end up having very fond memories of uh, people like him. Uh, I could also say that... Um, David Hockney, who happens to be uh, a fellow member of the Order of Merit, which is a, a very exclusive club inhabited only by 22 <coughs> citizens of the world. One of them's here. In fact, David Hockney and John were elected in the same day, in 2012. And, in fact, James Dyson's in the team, isn't he, too? Uh, Hockney I got to know because uh, we bought the National Gallery of Australia bought a painting of his called A Bigger Grand Canyon. So he came out here and uh, I sat next to him at the dinner. And, of course, almost the first thing he said to me was, can I go outside for a smoke? And I said, no, I don't think so. Maybe after dinner. Oh, 
So then I got a big lecture about how there are only six restaurants in Los Angeles where you could smoke and wasn't it a disgrace and what was I going to do about it, you know. Anyway, it, it, uh, it led to me having quite a strong friendship with him and um, I got to know his, his agent very well. And he was such a creative, inventive person. He's amazing, really. I have the, the utmost admiration for him. But he started doing these uh, little drawings on his iPad, in fact, even on his iPhone. And he could just sketch. He used this thing called paintbrush. And he could knock up a, a painting in two hours. And he would send it around to selected people. So I'd, I'd get one, you know, Andrew Marr, Stephen Fry and Richard Alston. And I can just imagine those two saying, who the hell is that? That <laughs> 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 I, I visited David in a number of places. He used to go up to the Hollywood Hills to his house. And uh, I, I just found it very inspirational in many ways to to meet people who are very high achievers and still performing. I mean, he's even older than John Howard and, you know, he's still... <laughs> he's still still going strong and, you know, still painting hard. I'll tell you one thing. John would love this. Tim Fisher once came to me and he said, you know, you've got to go to South Africa, Richard. He said, it's a very interesting place, a lot happening there. I said, yeah, but it's a bit off the beaten track. He said, no, no, you can go there, go to London via... South Africa. I said, oh, really? Okay. So I put in a submission and, of course, Prime Minister's office saw through this in a flash. They said, that was ridiculous. This is a direct flight. So, uh, so that was that. So I went back to Tim and Tim said, wait until I'm the acting PM. <laughs> Which, of course, he did. So off I went to South Africa. And I met, I met this guy who was their communications minister. He was an Indian called Jay Naidu, and he ran the trade union movement before he got into Parliament. Anyway, he said to me, you must come down to the Cape Flats, which is the poorest part of Cape Town, and I'm launching a new mobile phone base station. I thought to myself, how can they afford mobile phones, right? <laughs> so I get down there, and all these people living in packing cases, basically, I went into a few of them, very tidy. They'd have things on the wall, that carpet on the floor. And uh, eventually he did this launch and I said, so how are people going to handle all this? He said, oh, you've got to meet the owner of the phone. He said he will then charge people to use his phone. So everyone in the Cape Flats will be able to use a mobile phone, but there'll only be one phone. <laughs> and I thought that was very clever. And... Uh, it was, again, another amazing experience. Another one I can recall was uh, I was chairman of the Australian Afghan Association. This is before I became the, the uh, shadow minister, and it was because Alan Misson had been involved with the community. There were about 500 people in Melbourne, but there were four different groups who all had their own bank accounts and, you know, leaders and whatever. And it wasn't anything more than just family groupings, really. So one of them said to me, would you like to come over to Peshawar and meet the Mujahideen? Mm -hmm. So I went, went over, gave them your regards. Yes. Mark Taylor. Is that 334? Yes, well, it was a bit after I was there, John, so they didn't have a plaque <laughs> to remind me. But anyway, I was there a few days and I thought, well, seeing I'm close to Afghanistan, why don't I try and get in there? 
And uh, so I asked the embassy, and of course, no use at all. And then they asked the UN, and the UN said, oh, no, we're not insured against that sort of thing. So I thought, dead end. Next thing, I get this call, and they said, actually, we'll fly you in tomorrow. I said, why? They said, because the president wants to see you. A guy called Naji Buller. Now, he'd run the KGB equivalent in Afghanistan, a very fierce uh, um, individual. But I found it fascinating. I spent about three hours talking to him. He had a very good understanding of how democracies work. Uh, he understood how the third world operated and he didn't, wasn't greatly impressed. And I got the impression, despite all his leanings, that he was wanting to take them down the path to what we would regard as a, a sensible nation. And, of course, they've never really ever done that in Afghanistan. They just look, fight for a living. Uh, and, of course, a couple of years after I saw him, he, was, he and his brother were both strung up and impaled on the fence of the compound in Kabul. But, again, I thought it was quite an amazing thing. The, the last thing I should just tell you about, which I thought was another amazing experience, was um, Fred Hollows. I'd met Fred a few times and uh, seen him up in Alice Springs and places. And... Uh, I'd been to a couple of functions with him in Parliament House and then I heard that he was very sick. So I decided to go and see him when I was in Sydney and I saw him two days day before he died. Anyway, it was just... The only other person there was Frank Hardy, Power That Glory. So I then went to the funeral service, funeral mass at St Mary's, full house, every man and his dog including Paul Keating. Frank Hardy gave a eulogy, and part of that was, he said, you know, one of the last things Fred did was he had a visit from Richard Alston, and after Richard left, he said, nice to see Richard, not a bad bloke for a Liberal. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's one of the joys in many ways of uh, politics, that you do meet interesting people, and of course... John Howard has met them all, but uh, I've had my experiences. Now, I should just finish with Prince Philip, whom I found <laughs> fascinating. He, we once had a function at Australia House for the Australian Surf Lifesaving Association. They'd been founded 100 years. Don't ask me why, but anyway, this was the function. And he turned up, he drove himself in his little VW, disguised. He came in, did the rounds, talked to various people. And we're going up on the stage to say a few words. He said to me, do you know any of these people? And I said, no, not really. He said, oh, typical Aussies, just came along for the grog. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he told me another story about how he'd... Um, I ran into him quite a few times, actually. I mean, he was always fun to talk to. And he said, um, I was in South Africa one time and um, this journal... I just arrived and this journalist came up to me, just come out from London... He said, I've been sent out here uh, to follow your visit. So he said, oh, well, good luck, you know. A couple of days later, about three or four days later, the journalist came up to him again. He said, I've been recalled. He said, why? He said, well, my instructions were to come out here and follow your gaffes and you haven't made any. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm going home. <laughs> Philip, Philip thought that was what, a big victory. <laughs> So perhaps I'd better leave it there, but uh, can I just say that um, when I look... Oh, you should, yeah, I should also mention a couple of the Labor people. 
when I first arrived in Parliament House, at the old Parliament House, I used to go up to the uh, breakfast area, the dining room, and Peter Walsh was about one of the very few people there, and he, he completely ignored me. I'd sort of, hello, not interested. And this went on for weeks and weeks. But when he be became finance minister and then he resigned, if you remember, he started ringing me up and he was feeding me lines on childcare because he thought that childcare was a, you know, the way that they were going about accreditation was just a way of keeping the unions on site. So I suddenly found Peter Walsh being one of my best <laughs> feeders of information. <laughs> Hawke, I think we all knew very well as a lovable rogue in many respects, but uh, again, I can't tell you how, how generous of spirit he could be. And I remember we came out from London one time, and big, that big event in Parliament House, and um, someone said to me, can we have our photo taken with you? Don't ask me why, but anyway, I'm standing there just ready. All of a sudden, Hawkey comes up, puts his arms around me, says, I'll be in on this, <laughs> which I thought was very typical of him. And I remember after we'd won the 98 election, Reith and Costello and I had been doing some media stuff the night before and we're out at the airport ready to go home and Bob walks in with Blanche and he comes over and he says, oh, God, you know, bloody hell. But he says, I suppose you bastards deserve to win, you know. And Blanche came over and said, Bob, how dare it? How could you possibly be speaking to these people? Come away at once. He said, hang on. Oh, all right. <laughs> <I'll be pissed. laughs> but the guy that I, I found the most interesting, because it was the most unlikely. I'd never really met Gough Whitlam, but when I was the Shadow Arts Minister, I was at the um, Sydney Opera House one night, someone said, did you know that uh, Richard's brother-in-law uh, has a distant relative who's related to your side of the family? Gough said, that's very interesting. He, he wrote me a note the next day about it all, and from then on he used to call me cuz. So I'd go to functions, he's a cos. <laughs> and Michael Lee once had the great presence of mind to say, I think I can see the resemblance. <laughs> but the highlight was uh, when we were going to London, it was to be in February, and just before Christmas I went to Machiavelli's for lunch. Goff's there with his entourage. So, of course, I went over and had a bit of a chat. I said, you must come over to London, you know, come to Stoke Lodge we'll Turn, on, turn it on for you. He said, look, I'd love to. He said, but can't be done. He said, look at Margaret. I think she was on crutches at the time. He said, yeah, just nothing works anymore, you know. Can't make it. So I said, oh, that's very unfortunate. So I went around to talk to Margaret. I said, do you think you might be able to come over to London one time? She said, I'd love to. She said, but goff. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> nothing, nothing works, you know. Up, legs. You know. I said, well... His voice seems to be in pretty good working order. She said, just tell me. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd better finish, I suppose. But um, there, there were three things I can recall being quite proud of in our time, and certainly from my perspective. And one was that we spent over a billion dollars on regional and rural infrastructure. So as John rightly told the Bush, you're no longer going to be second-class citizens. And I think we did transform their lives in many ways. So I thought that was pretty important. Um, the second thing, I think, was Indigenous art, which was always a hobby horse of mine. And I think being able to provide funds to uh, pay for the wages of art coordinators who were responsible for running these places and 
in many ways they did everything. They bought the raw materials, they made arrangements with galleries, they helped the artists with their personal affairs, that sort of thing. Uh, I thought that was a great achievement. But probably my greatest achievement, I think, was that I was once on the squash court when the bells rang and someone said, it's not a Mickey Mouse, you better get there. So in just under four minutes, I ran back to my ministerial office, got changed and got to the chamber. Yeah, that is a record that, that still stands, right? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll leave it there, but I'll suffice it to say that uh, I had a wonderful time in politics, met a lot of very interesting people, and I have enormous respect for those who continue to practice it. Uh, I'm doing other things still. I don't think you should retire, and I won't, but I'll always follow the great game very closely. Richard Thank John, Tim. Well, uh, in all of that, though, you have not mentioned your relationship with the public broadcaster. And as communications minister, some of you may remember that Richard Olson and indeed John Howard had some clashes with the ABC. Uh, many of our people on the centre-right spectrum of opinion believe that there's a soft-left group think that clouds its editorial judgement. Tell us about your relationship with the ABC. In the period of time since we came to government, almost everything's changed. But I don't think much has changed at the ABC. Some say it's got worse, John Howard. They were difficult to deal with because everything seemed a bit political. Uh, they were not really interested in engaging. They, they basically, they'd say they held the government to account, but basically they declared war on government. And even the Labor Party found this. I had senior cabinet minister, yeah. former cabinet minister, ring me and say the same thing. And uh, it was difficult to, to get them to adhere to the charter, which was expressed in such vague terms it means nothing anyway. But essentially they run their own race. And, you know, given that they're guaranteed a billion dollars a year and the private sector and the media are struggling to survive, it's a fairly privileged lifestyle. Mm. But they never seem to... Acknowledged Middle Australia. Well, the Labor Prime Minister, Bob Hawke, clashed with the ABC on now, various occasions. repeated use of Robert Springborg yeah. by the late Andrew Wally at the time of the first Gulf War. 1990, 1991. Yeah, he used to have him on every night, or virtually every night. Um, yeah, but that's... OK, that, that's, that's correct. But there's no doubt that culturally the ABC, like all public broadcasters, attracts people of the centre-left persuasion. Um, it's not as pervasive as the BBC is. The BBC uh, has talked, you know, and I've talked uh, at some length with people like Lincoln Crosby over this because he sort of experienced it in both countries. The BBC has a more influential impact on British politics than the ABC does mm. here. I don't think the ABC has got any better in terms of political balance over the last 20 years, probably got worse. But I don't think it has quite the impact it used to have because um, the media is more fragmented and you've got a far more assertive attitude being taken by Sky and, 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 and others, and I think you've got to bear that in mind. Um, the problem with the ABC is it's not just that ingrained centre-left disposition, but they have four or five issues 
And you can almost, I mean, I, I still watch the 7 o'clock ABC News, and I start watching the 7.30 report. If it annoys me, I'll go on to something else. But, you know, I, I think it's by bounden duty uh, to sort of know what the others are saying. And um, they have their obsessions. They, in climate change, uh, a particularly um, rights-based approach to Indigenous policy, uh, a, you know, a very radical position on any social issue, uh, and, of course, any opportunity they can do to have a dig at the armed forces, mm. um, uh, I think, is something that comes through. So you've got some of these things that are just uh, ABC issues. Opinion varies, though. This is Kerry O'Brien last year. He mentions the point about how the ABC, more than the commercial networks, uh, covers Indigenous affairs. And he says one reason there are more of those stories on the ABC is that the broadcaster has so many radio and television news and current affairs outlets. I don't remember John Howard complaining about Lateline's political correctness when their stories on child abuse allegations in Aboriginal communities in Northern Territory gave him a rationale to launch his controversial intervention across the Territory. How would you respond to Kerry O'Brien? Well, it's true that um, uh, Tony Jones, not Kerry O'Brien, uh, ran very hard on, on, on uh, yeah. the report, Little Children Are Sacred, uh, and I appreciated the coverage they gave to it. I didn't think it was politically correct. I thought it was quite factual, but mm. it doesn't alter mm. what I said. I mean, Kerry O'Brien and I probably had a couple of hundred interviews in the time that I was Prime Minister. How many? Probably a couple of hundred. A couple of hundred in, yeah. in 12 years. Oh, yeah. And I think it's fair to say, I'm thinking out loud here, in the 12 years since you left office, I doubt there have been 100 interviews with those six prime ministers on Not that show. Not, but I took the view with Kerry O'Brien, although his views on politics and mine were radically different, I took the view that he was a serious contributor. He did his homework. Mm. He always asked difficult questions. The ABC was a... 7.30 report in those days was a program that politicians and the media watched. Our own supporters, particularly in the bush, watched the 7.30 report and I thought it was my responsibility to go on it and we used to cross swords but uh, uh, I think the government's position would have been the poorer if I had yeah. done it. Let me bring Richard Olson back into the Kerry O'Brien ABC argument because he remembers on the night of the Howard landslide in 1996... Uh, he was sitting on the ABC panel on election night watching Richard Orson, these are his words, who was about to become our minister, as he promised that the ABC budget would not be cut. He was reiterating an earlier pledge, this is Kerry O'Brien, yet it was his recommendation to Cabinet that saw the ABC budget slashed. Not only that, Alston actually acknowledged in writing to his Cabinet colleagues in his draft budget submission that was leaked to me, <laughs> and which I still have in my files today, uh, that the cuts he was recommending would be in breach of the government's election promise. Well, just dealing with that last point first, that submission did not come to me for approval. It was leaked directly to the media. So we would never have said yeah. that we were in breach of our obligations, and that was why I always cordially distrusted the department on ABC matters. And mm. with the Iraq war coverage, for example, <laughs> I, I drafted all the questions myself, right? Um, O'Brien's view, uh, recollection is just not accurate because uh, he says we reiterated what we'd said earlier. Well, our policy position was quite clear that we would maintain funding for the current triennium, which is three years, mm. and we did. 
And then, of course, the whole purpose of a triennium is you review your level of funding and we cut them back. So that wasn't a breach of anything. And essentially um, what happened on the night was uh, Jim Middleton asked me whether we would uh, maintain funding for the life of the parliament, which, of course, was not what the policy document said at all. Mm. So they, they had a field day with all this, but uh, I don't think that the, any of it was really valid. John Howard. Well, I agree with it. I actually saw him say that. I, my recollection is exactly the same. Have we got to the point now where it's beyond uh, the realm of um, a possibility for any federal government to reform a public broadcaster? I think it's very hard culturally. Yeah, yeah. I do. Yeah. You've, got to, you've got to be realistic about it. And public broadcasters attract centre-left people. That doesn't mean to say you shouldn't keep trying, and I think you've got to, you've got to keep hitting them with facts and pointing out where there are inaccuracies or lack of balance. But they just uh, attract a genre of people uh, who are culturally disposed to the left of politics. And that's true in Australia, it's true in Canada, it's true in Britain, it's true uh, in the United States. Now, which Richard, can I just yeah. say, part of the problem is that 53% of their total workforce are based in Sydney. Inner Sydney, yeah. Ultimo, right? And if you look at the ABC in the rural and regional areas, people are perfectly happy with the coverage yes. because those people live there mm. and they relate to the people they deal with. Mm. But the ABC now doesn't have any production facilities in South Australia or in Tasmania. It's overwhelmingly Sydney-centric and they're not in the slightest bit interested in breaking it up. And, and, and to back that up, I, I found doing talkback Radio on the ABC in Western Australia and South Australia was quite different mm. from yeah. doing it in Sydney. Yeah. Quite different. And that's because in Sydney yeah. and Melbourne and to some extent Canberra, the journalists more or less think alike and they reflect a soft yeah. left bias. Yeah. That's the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And they, they you, don't in the work. Don't, don't, the ABC is not the beginning and the end of the media world. Yeah, I think that's uh, right. And, and I think its influence has demonstrated by the results of the last few elections. Yes, well, but the, the number of people watching yes. the 7.30 report <laughs> and right. the ABC News have halved in the last 10 years. Yeah. Mm. Did you watch the ABC coverage on election night? I, I watched the replay because I wanted to see how some of them reacted. I, <laughs> I, I, I'm interested in this. It, it, it does interest me. I, I started... I, I watched Sky at the beginning... And when it looked as though we were going to win, I, I put on my suit and Jeanette and I went in the... And, and our son Richard went into um, celebration. Many of my conservative friends took great joy in seeing the, um, the looks on the faces of Labor politicians on the night. I didn't take that view because it was understandable that they'd be obviously sad and, and we get that. However, uh, is it excusable for the likes of Laura Tingle and Barry Cassidy to look like they're staying away from sharp objects. Richard Olson. <laughs> <laughs> or, 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 or is that a Dorothy Dixer? <laughs> I'd say it's a big talk. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about some other subjects. Ah, to the Arts Minister as well, from 96 to 2003. Question, are the arts a luxury that governments can't afford? Uh, look, I think the arts have a critical role to play in maintaining a vibrant cultural life in Australia. And there are some 
art forms like opera, which will never be able to pay their own way, and we have to fund that. Mm. And uh, I think, by and large, Australians understand that. I mean, at the end of the day, it's not just an art form for aristocrats when you think that three tenors got a hundred thousand people at the Melbourne Cricket Ground ten or fifteen years ago. Uh, so I think governments will always have a role. But having said that, uh, it does get harder, and I think these arts organisations have to look after themselves much better than they have. And I should have mentioned it in the time, but one of the great achievements, I thought, in the arts was we did a review of the major performing arts sector. And one of the reasons we did that was that out of something like 30, there was only one that had reserves of more than a million dollars, and that was the ballet, because they owned a car park, right? So I said, look, I'll think about whether we have a review, and I then went to see... John, PM, I said, look, this is what I've got in mind, but I don't want to go out there and, and set it all up and someone says, right, the only solution to this is give us a million dollars, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, can I have some sort of commitment that you will fund it? And, and he basically did. And uh, as a result, we set up this committee, which was mm -hmm. headed by Helen Nugent. We had Gonski and we had Michael Cheney and Kathy yep. Walter. I mean, these were really heavy hitters, big success stories in the business community, but they also had a love of the arts. And they did a fabulous job. Yeah. And as a result of that now, I think there are something like 11 or 12 that have reserves in excess of a million. And what we did was professionalise these companies because they'd live on the edge. They've had one bad performance and then they're almost going broke. They'd come to you for more money. And it was just a cycle. Yeah. And we said, no... Before you get any money, you've got to have a business case which has to be worked through with the Australia Council. And that worked a treat. We'll take some questions very soon, but uh, I want to ask both of you about the British election on Friday week. Mm. Um, the conventional wisdom is that the Tories will win a majority, which means that Brexit will go through. But we've seen so many examples in recent times, Brexit in 2016, May in 2017, of course, Trump in 2016, and our own election on May 18, where the polls don't reflect the reality. Uh, just say, for argument's sake, the Tories do not win a majority. What does that mean for British politics and Brexit in particular? John Howard. Well, it depends. They don't win a majority. There are a lot of alternatives. So you could have a, a hung parliament again, which, you know, I think to his great discredit, uh, Tony Blair is arguing for. Yep. Um, uh, so it's John Major. Angela Moment really is. If you're worried about democracy, one of the things you should worry about is senior people encouraging the public to repudiate a decision they have taken in an open democratic government. Mm. I mean, there's nothing more mm. contemptuous than to say, look, we've decided to ask the British people whether they want to stay in or leave the European Union. They vote clearly to leave the European Union Oh, we're now trying to undermine that decision. Yeah. It's been three and a half years. It's three and a half years. This now. is the European way, though. That's yeah, what they is, do. It's the European way, and it's yeah. not, it oughtn't to be the British way. No. OK, and but if the, Tories, if the Tories don't get a majority... Yeah, well, look, look I, I, I think they will. I think Johnson is a better campaigner than Theresa May. Theresa May was a terrible campaigner. Yeah. There was no justification in the public mind other than partisan political advantage to have that early election. There'd been an election only two years mm. previously. Mm. Whereas people understand why there's an election now. Um, and, and, and she 
proposed a policy which represented uh, a potential tax hit on the hard core of the conservative electorate, uh, the so-called dementia tax. So, um, look, I'm, I'm optimistic mm. now. If it doesn't happen, well, heaven, and God forbid uh, that Corbyn should win. I mean, he is the most radical, crazy, stupid uh, 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 alternative government. I mean, you talk about Michael Foote in 1983. Three. Mm. Uh, he, he's of nothing compared with what and what did Margaret Thatcher say that his campaign manifesto was? The longest suicide note in history? No, political history? Before, <laughs> that, there you go. <laughs> oh, but this is 1983. Richard Olsen, if the Tories don't get a majority, does that mean that Brexit is dead? Uh, I, don't, I don't think so, because the way that the Europeans have treated the British with utter contempt... I think would make everyone feel you couldn't possibly go back. I mean, as Groucho Marx said, who wants to belong to a club that wants me as a member? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the, the reality is that um, there's nothing in it for Britain anymore. Yeah. They, they've seen the light on the hill. They, they, the referendum was clearly carried. Uh, and you've always had Eurosceptics, and I think mm. there'd be a lot more of them if that were the case. I mean, people like Jacob Mulgrees and others... Uh, I'm not going to throw in the towel. Okay, questions. Colin, uh, we get a microphone here. Emily is Colin McLennan. In relation to the potential of majority governments, I'm going back to my early days of work, which is like the early 60s. I worked for an advertising agency, had the Labor Party account, so I, I had access to knowledge of politics at an early age. And then, in those days, the... The theory in, politi in political advertising was that Labor and Liberal were locked in to their voting. They wouldn't, families wouldn't change their votes. The, cha the potential of swing was about 6 to 8%. Come to an hour, the election in the last couple of years is probably close to 20 or 24%. Are we likely to have a majority government in my lifetime? I, I, it's just, I suspect that may not be because of the strength of the crossbench has become so powerful. Well, we're going to have... Um, I mean, you'll, you'll have clear majority governments in the House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. It's the Senate. And, and uh, um, I think <coughs> if you look at the Senate since 1949, there have only been rare periods where the party commanding a majority in the lower house also commanded a majority in the Senate. You had it for a period of six years after 1975. You had it um, uh, briefly in the last period of our time in office, and you had it spasmodically during the Menzies government period. The big difference is that in the Menzies period, the, front, the, the minor parties favoured the coalition. Because so the DLP, God bless them, mm. they were they were they saved Menzies in 1961, and they arguably saved Gorton in 1969. The big change is that the the left, the Greens, uh, have replaced the Democrats as the major Senate party, minority party. I just think unless the two major parties get together and campaign for some change to the double dissolution provision of the Constitution to allow a joint sitting without the, necess the necessity of a double dissolution, which I think would make a lot of sense. I think mm. it's the one big constitutional change 
this country ought to consider. Um, I think you, you, you have to bump along with the sort of stuff we've had over the past few days with Jackie Lambie and, and Pauline Hanson. I, it, it's what, can I tell you, if you tried to rig the system against the minor parties, the laudable scepticism and perversity of the Australian people would reject it. Mm. I, 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 that's my feeling. I just okay. think that people would react against any attempt by the, the big boys uh, to destroy the little people. That's Next question. Uh, hi. First of all, thank you so much for a very interesting chat. I also want to say you're clearly one of the kindest people in Australia because you referred to people in the ABC as centre-right which is uh, very, uh, very kind of you. Um, uh, central left, pardon. Uh, I do wonder, though. <laughs> I was going to say. Yeah. Oh, right. I might be the one centre-right guy then. Yeah. I don't know if there's two. Well, uh, but, but speaking of centre-right, I do just wonder, uh, people within the ABC themselves wouldn't call themselves centre-right. They call themselves left-wingers or progressives. <gasps> people within just the mainstream of the left have no qualms with calling themselves left-wingers, progressives, and being very open about it, whereas it seems that a lot of the right-wing politics, whether it be on the center or a little bit more on the hard right, um, are apologetic about their position. Recently, after the win that we had uh, electorally, which is good, we appointed someone to oversee the ABC, and she didn't consider that there was any bias there. So are we going to have a lot of success uh, on the right, whether it be the center or the hard right, if we're apologetic about our position going into it. Well, Richard Austin, what do you make of that? I mean, is bias, bias is in the eye of the beholder, but it, that's a very frustrating thing for many people, like this gentleman who reflects a centre-right position. Yeah, look, I've, can I start by saying this term hard right is thrown around very promiscuously. Uh, it's, it's usually used by people who are wanting to distinguish themselves mm. on the other side. Uh, so I don't think that's the, the problem. I, I think most ABC people would would not want to be called hard left or even centre left. I think they'd be very comfortable with being called progressives. But we we all know what that means in reality, and it essentially means they they don't think there's very much good about any coalition government, even though we've been in power for 48 out of 72 years. So. Um, it is very frustrating, though, when someone like a Tony Jones introduces a, a speaker or a panellist on Q&A and I, gives them the health warning of conservative commentator yeah. Richard Alston or Tom Switzer. Yeah. But if it's David Marr or yeah. Robert Fisk, yeah. they're the independent author. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They don't get the health warning. Yeah. <laughs> Next question, Aaron Patrick. Um, thanks, Tom. Hey, this week, um, 7.30 had an item about ministerial ministers being fired. Min and Ministers being fired under what conditions? And the argument was, is that in the old days, ministers would get fired if they were causing political embarrassment to a government. And they cited the case of the minister who came in with the colour TV and declared as black and white, mm. and the minister who brought a TV, uh, teddy bear and didn't. And the argument was in relation to Angus Taylor, um, was that Angus Taylor is causing the government grief, but he's not getting fired because... The practices have changed of ministerial accountability. And I'm just wondering, is that is that analysis accurate based on? No, you know? I don't think it's the least bit analysis. Um, uh, I, I don't think it's the least bit accurate. It's the, the true Westminster principle has always been that a minister has to go if 
if his or her continued presence in the government is damaging to the government. Now, that's apart from where the minister has plainly been guilty of a crime or, or, or it's an open and shut case that he misled the parliament. But when you get, as is the case with 95% of the demands for ministerial resignation, it's very grey. Uh, the, the question has always been, uh, can you hang on without continued damage? And that's a reasonable test. Because oppositions always shout and scream and demand that government ministers go. Um, I, I'm, I'm not, not impressed with the argument the Labor Party's mounted in relation to Angus Taylor. Uh, it was obviously a, a mistake, but he did apologise for that mistake. He did a, a withdraw it, and, uh, and I think it's, it's told me moved on. And I think he's a very able person. Um, he's a good example of somebody who's done a lot with his life mm. before going into Parliament. Next question. Yeah, um, Richard, uh, you mentioned about the ABC that it's completely unaccountable to the Australian public because it's not really accountable to a, a minister, so it just kind of does its own thing, um, and it gets a billion dollars of taxpayers' money every year. I think any Democrat, doesn't matter what side of politics you're on, would find that a bit repugnant that we give a billion dollars to an organisation which doesn't have any direct line of accountability through our Westminster system. Um, and I guess the thing I'm asking is, is there any real good reason besides perhaps the political fallout why we shouldn't have a big fire sale auction at Altano tomorrow <laughs> and just sell off all their assets and be done with it? Because I don't think privatising wouldn't work because no one's going to buy a business that loses a billion dollars a year. So we're just going to have to plug everything off, I think. Um, but I understand, you know, calling that. But is there any, you know, anything that, that people say the bush, but you could probably contract out it to... Um, the commercial mm. networks, just like we get, we, we contract out Telstra to run payphones. Like, I, what, what, what's the real good, so is there any good reason for existence? Look, look, that's not the real world. I don't think anyone wants to see the ABC closed down. What you want is to have, have them <laughs> do what they do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, I meant at higher levels of politics, I don't think, because it's politically very difficult indeed. What, what I would say is, however, that you could split the ABC into, they call it news and current affairs, we call it politics, right? If you had that structurally separate from the rest of the ABC, instead of the ABC being able to say everyone loves us, well, they don't actually. They all love the non-political stuff and, and they get, that gets a big tick and we're happy with that. It's the political stuff where I think it's much more fraught and that would be holding them to account if they had to respond to surveys and the like. I, I find it extraordinary that the ABC doesn't really want to know what its viewers want. I mean, g given the sort of massive decline in audience, mm. there was a story last year where they said, uh, well, you know, we are a bit worried about this actually and we're going to have a, a retraining exercise for journalists, which of course is not the answer at all. The answer is to find out why are people not wanting to watch you anymore? Everyone says the SBS news is much better. In fairness, the digital evolution of media has made it very difficult for commercial and public yes. broadcasters. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, look, a few months ago, uh, the chairman of CIS, Nicholas Moore, and I had the great pleasure of uh, reigniting our Indigenous program, and we couldn't think of a better person to run that program than Jacinta Price. Uh, Jacinta Price has been a leading advocate for addressing uh, disadvantaged communities, particularly uh, domestic abuse. Uh, she's been a strong supporter of the cashless welfare card, and uh, she was the Liberal Party or the country Liberal Party candidate in the Northern Territory electorate of 
uh, Lingiari in, in, in the May 18 election. She came very close to defeating uh, Warren Snowden, the Labor MP, who's been there more or less since 1987. And I call on my colleague Jacinta to do the vote of thanks. Jacinta Price. Well, thank you very much, Tom. Um, so this evening, Richard Olsen has raised some important issues related to his distinguished, distinguished record in public life, especially in his communications portfolio. One issue that strikes me that is unfinished business, of course, we've all been talking about it, <laughs> is reforming the ABC. The public broadcaster is a great cultural institution. However, there is no question that a left-green cultural think group, group think, sorry, <laughs> routinely clouds the ABC's editorial output. As Thomas told the national press, when an ABC investigative documentary or current affairs segment or a drama, comedy or opinion program expresses an attitude or a tone of voice, it is more likely a narrow, politically correct one. In this climate, is it any wonder that superficial and narrow political agendas are pushed? For example, until Ida Buckrose became chairperson, both the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flags were displayed prominently at the ABC's Ultimo entrance, which was fine, except there was no Australian flag. Really? That is a fact. <laughs> what is Ultimo? Yep. Until recently. Go, go, go. Correct. So. <laughs> <laughs> I have direct negative experience of this agenda pushing. I see myself as an outspoken Aboriginal woman. Outspoken because I speak out openly about the critical issues faced by Aboriginal victims, in particularly in family violence. Naturally, I did this during my, na my national speaking tour. The Coffs Harbour City Council asked me to seek permission from the local Gumbangi community to enter onto their lands prior to my event. I was also asked to arrange a welcome to country. However, I politely declined and explained I do not do welcome to country as it is a modern construct and I'm a traditionalist when it comes to my Wadri culture. <laughs> The Coffs Harbour-based ABC journalist, regional ABC journalist, I might add, mm. uh, Fiona Poole attended my event and did a follow-up story. She failed to report on anything I spoke about, did not interview me about my event. She did proudly announce that she sought permission from the Gumbangi representatives <laughs> to attend my event. <laughs> and then broadcast interviews with heads of two Aboriginal organisations in Coffs Harbour who maligned my character and urged locals not to attend my event. So, in this appalling case of clearly biased journalism, even Media Watch mm. admitted ABC had done terribly wrong by me. I will add, however, 
that I will continue to throw the truth at them. Uh, and that's a promise. <laughs> <laughs> so tonight, Richard Olson has reminded us that he took a tough stand on ABC bias. We need such toughness now more than ever. On behalf of CIS, may I thank you, Richard Alston and John Howard. It is always an honour and pleasure to be in your company. So thank you both sincerely for being our special guests today. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you, Jacinta, and thank you, Richard, and thank you, John.